Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This show is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Get ready for a head-spinning week here on Politics of Truth as we take a look back at Bernie Sanders' stunning victory in the Nevada caucus last Saturday and look ahead to the pivotal South Carolina primary, which takes place this Saturday. To help us better understand the historic and present importance of these two contests, we tap the foremost political experts in each state. Elections are about defining the future we seek. Horace Greeley famously said, go west, young man, to capture that spirit of self-determination. So let's first head west to Nevada and speak with John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent and the unofficial dean of Nevada politics, who co-moderated NBC's Democratic debate last week about the near future of this campaign after Sanders' significant victory last Saturday. John Ralston, welcome to the Politics of Truth. Hi there. John I want to get into what happened in Nevada this weekend, but first, you are the founder of the Nevada Independent, and something I'm very cognizant of and concerns me greatly is the death of the American newspaper and what comes next. I'm a musician, right? We've gone through all kinds of situations with streaming and who gets paid for what they do, who doesn't get paid. That's kind of what we're dealing with with the newspaper business. Washington Post is doing great. New York Times is doing great. But your local newspaper that's holding your local government accountable is not doing great. First thing I want to do for our listeners, talk about the Nevada Independent and how it came to be. It's a great question, and I appreciate you uh, starting with that. Um, it's, it's the best and hardest thing I've ever done in my uh, long career of 35-plus years in journalism. Uh, I, I, we, we just turned three years old. I conceived of the idea in 2016 uh, after my last television show uh, ended. I had been on TV for almost uh, 16 years at a variety of different stations. So I, I thought to myself, you know, the one thing I kind of wanted to do as a career capstone that I had never done uh, was to start my own news organization and mentor some great young reporters. And uh, I figured that I was finally old enough to be a mentor. So <laughs> I, I thought about I, I thought about how I would do it. And I, I settled on the nonprofit model. And for those of, who, of you who have not been on the site, we disclose all of our donors uh, from five dollars up to our big corporate donors. But it was it's coming at a very fraught time. Uh, the Review Journal had just been bought by a billionaire and the largest uh, economic and political player in the state. The Las Vegas Sun was retrenching. And you had someone running for president who was exploiting the already negative view of the media to try to delegitimize the mainstream media. But I believed that out there, there was still a yearning for a place to come where you can find truth transparency, in-depth kinds of reporting. And so uh, I, I, I am so heartened that, that, that our readership continues to improve, that uh, donors continue to give, and that we've been alive for three years. And I could not be prouder uh, of, of the young reporters I've hired uh, and, and the job that they're doing. They are the hardest working and most talented uh, people I've ever worked with. You have some great reporters in your staff. And I think that Thank you, you. 
I think you have the model that's going to take us into the 20, you know, we're in the 21st century, but as we move forward, this is the the model for local, regional, independent journalism. And I'm so excited about what you're doing and what they're doing in Denver with the Colorado Sun. So you guys are doing some great work and we got to keep the news coming we need to keep it fresh and we need to hold our leaders whether it's in the in the in the in the in dc or or in vegas or reno or raleigh north carolina where i am we need to keep we need to hold them accountable now we're going to get to bernie sanders incredible victory but you know we love to do history here so tell me how the 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 nevada caucus got to be towards the front of the calendar Well, back in uh, 2007, uh, Harry Reid was uh, the the Democratic leader in the Senate, and he had a lot of influence. And he decided that it was time to get Nevada into the early state mix for a variety of reasons, uh, including that we we are much more reflective demographically of the country than Iowa and New Hampshire, which are 90 percent white. But he also wanted to help the Democratic Party here and, by the way, help himself. He was up for very difficult re-election the following cycle. So uh, he went to the DNC and he lobbied for this and he had a lot of influence at that time. And he managed to get uh, Nevada in in as an early state uh, under the condition that would be a caucus because he wanted to use it as an organizing tool as well. And the first caucus that we had here, the early state caucus in 2008, uh, they registered, I believe it was 30,000 new voters on that one day. And so he saw the potential of it and he did uh, win re-election uh, the next cycle, partly because of the energy that that created in the registration uh, program. And we've been in the early uh, state mix ever since as a caucus, although I believe, and we can talk about it if you like, this is the last year you're going to see any caucuses anywhere uh, in America. A- absolutely. Our first week we did, uh, we were we had Bob Costa with us uh, and the day after the debacle in, in Iowa, Mayor Pete's saying there was some inconsistencies and irregularities with the voting this weekend in Nevada. What say you with all of that and the future of the caucus? Well, there were inconsistencies and irregularities. There all always are in a caucus. People should know, though, when Mayor Pete wrote that letter to the Democratic Party, it was after the first batch of results had come out and it showed him neck and neck with Joe Biden for second place. And uh, he really wants to position himself, as does Biden, as the alternative to Bernie. And so at that point, it looked like maybe if some of those errors could be corrected, that maybe he would get second place. But as the results came in, it was it showed that Biden stretched his lead. And so he's clearly second place. And, and Mayor Pete is third for what that's worth when it's just such a blowout by Bernie. Uh, the caucus is gone because it uh, because of the disaster in Iowa, because people have been so critical of its so-called undemocratic way of calculating votes. So and Iowa's going to be gone. Nevada's going to be gone. I'm only hoping that as we go to a primary that we retain our early state status. It wouldn't have been a question if Harry Reid were still in uh, a power, but he's he's retired now. And so I think it's very uh, iffy uh, if we're going to be able to keep our early state status. Reid, of course, came out this week and said what I have been saying for a long time, not that he copied me, but that Nevada should be first because we really do have a very diverse electorate that's reflective uh, of the electorate at large. 
So how were the overall numbers uh, for, for, for the weekend? And, and what does that say about um, the diversity that you have? Like, does that, you know, you guys had pretty good numbers, I think. Is, th- is that a good um, uh, predictor for the Democrats going into the fall? Well, there was there were seventy five thousand people who voted early, uh, partly because of the Iowa disaster. That's a big number. They wanted to vote early as opposed to caucus on Saturday. Only twenty five thousand people caucus on Saturday. But the total is bigger than twenty sixteen. And I think people are really making a big mistake uh, extrapolating from whether they think it was a good turnout or bad turnout to what the enthusiasm will be in November. Completely different set of circumstances. And it's it's. It's like when people talk about low turnouts in primaries uh, for regular elections and whether that is determinative at all of what's going to happen in the general election. It's not. Uh, There are so many things that are going to happen between now and November that what just happened will be long forgotten. Heck, it'll probably be forgotten by the time they have that debate tomorrow night. It'll be forgotten by the time this podcast airs on Wednesday or Thursday. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so how strong, I mean, what do you think in the fall? You think that Nevada could go Democratic? I know it's it's kind of in that column. It's in that blue column right now. But how is President Trump's strength there? I know he's been trolling all of the Democratic primaries and caucus sites. Is he is he a strong candidate? And could he turn it turn it red this fall? Well, Trump, Trump's numbers here are, are terrible. He's anywhere from 10 to 15 points underwater, meaning that's how large his disapproval rating is over his approval rating. Uh, the state also has become increasingly blue. Uh, the, the, the last three Democratic nominees, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, all, all won here. Um, and, and the Democratic Party here is is one of the most formidable machines in the country, and they keep out-registering the Republicans now by even bigger margins because of automatic voter registration and same-day registration for the caucus, where they uh, registered, they say, 10,000 new Democratic voters. So uh, Trump should not be competitive here in the fall, but there's a lot of talk among Republicans that they can flip some states if Bernie Sanders is the nominee. And, and the argument is that, he, that they, he will be too extreme for moderates and even moderate Democrats and independents. And of course, independent registration here has skyrocketed over the last 10 years. So I'm not sure I buy the argument, uh, but uh, even if Bernie Sanders is a nominee, it is barely a 50-50 proposition at best for Trump to win Nevada. All right, so we've buried the lead here. Sanders had an incredible victory. Uh, How did he do it? He did it uh, because he had uh, the best field operation and the most enthusiasm. And you can combine those two things uh, and you can't lose. Now, Bernie Sanders did pretty well in Nevada in 2016. He barely lost uh, to Hillary Clinton. And, but that was essentially a ragtag group that didn't have any real organization, just all that passion that Bernie Sanders engenders. This time they had real political pros. They had an infrastructure built and they were able to harness that enthusiasm and win by a more than two to one margin. So it's really pretty simple how he did it. You got to see Sanders in action. I mean, what do you think? Is that is the energy really with him? Is Does he have something akin in 2020 to what Trump had going in 2016 as far as the crowds go and the enthusiasm and the rising ascendant coalition? Uh, I think that's exactly the right question. And I think the answer is yes. 
Uh, it's different, of course, but uh, th there are some similarities. But you you see nothing like uh, uh, the enthusiasm for Sanders at other rallies, although it could be said that Elizabeth Warren for a while was engendering that same kind uh, of energy. But she has faded a little bit from the conversation, despite her tremendous performance in the debate. The real issue for Bernie Sanders now, though, as he built up this momentum out of Nevada, is what's going to happen as you see all the attacks on him escalate and they're going to focus on two things. One, the cost of his programs, which even he says is at least $30 trillion. That's going to be stunning for some people. And the uh, exhumation of all the old clips of him talking in somewhat flattering terms about uh, uh, authoritarian regimes. Uh, that stuff, while he, whether it's taken out of context or placed in context, and, and all of his spending is going to be used not by Donald Trump first, but by his opponents to try to slow down his momentum. Uh, I, I would suggest, though, that with the coalition that he's building, uh, that he has a chance to win South Carolina where Biden was once dominant. And if he wins South Carolina after winning Nevada, he's going to have tremendous momentum going into Super Tuesday, and he'll be very, very difficult to stop. Okay, last question. Does anybody get out between South Carolina and before Super Tuesday? Well, it's only a few days, but uh, and they're all saying now they're in for the duration, including Klobuchar and Steyer, who really uh, don't don't seem to have much chance. Uh, you, you listen, you have to have a UG go to run for president in the first place. That that that's baked in. But the writing's going to be on the wall, and there's going to be tremendous tremendous pressure uh, for both of them to get out. And I think it's possible that they both get out before Super Tuesday. John, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Let's head across the country to the sweet, sunny South and speak with the founder of Winthrop University's Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research, Dr. Scott Huffman. The center's Winthrop poll is the most respected poll in the South, and Huffman is an expert on all things South Carolina politics. As the first contest in the South and the last primary before Super Tuesday, South Carolina takes on an even greater significance this year than in previous campaign seasons. Full disclosure, I went to Winthrop and took Dr. Huffman's political science statistics class. Scott Huffman, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Ah, thank you for having me on. Scott, you are the director of the Winthrop Poll, which has become the most important poll in the southeast of the United States. Tell me about the poll and, and how often you run the poll, because you don't just conduct this poll during uh, campaign season, correct? Uh, that's correct. Actually, I uh, I utterly loathe doing uh, election polling, to be honest. Uh, you know, you don't get much uh, good deep data with that. You know, they you know by necessity, they're they're short polls. Uh, you know, it's a snapshot, an accurate snapshot of of you know how things stand that day. Um, but the polling I love doing most is is not just likely voters, but kind of all citizens. And so. You know, for South Carolina, um, you know, those those polls where we kind of get, ask everyone questions, the politicians only care about registered and likely voters. But, uh, you know, our polling into the, the heart of South Carolina has actually led to some changes. Uh, for example, the politicians were terrified 
of CBD oil. Oh, the, the public will never go for anything related to marijuana. Well, our polling showed that people were okay with CBD oil, and the next session they uh, they passed a law making it, it legal in, in South Carolina. Um, the, other, the other polling we do is of the entire South. Uh, I think uh, most folks are probably aware, you know, uh, 20 years ago and earlier, Chapel Hill, uh, the Odom, Odom Institute, used to do Southwide polling, and now nobody does. And the South as a region um, is, is still a cohesive region in a way other regions in America aren't. So, for example, back to, to voting, any Republican presidential candidate in the modern era who sweeps the South, gets all the southern states, becomes president, and any Democratic presidential candidate who cracks the South with at least two states, they become president. So, yeah, we, we don't just do election polling. Um, at a minimum of, of four times a year, we, we put out the, the Winthrop poll. Um, you know, we, we do some other, other polling as well. Uh, for the state of, of South Carolina, but uh, the Winthrop poll—that's that's sort of the you know where my heart lies. So the most recent Winthrop poll uh, results came out on Friday, February twenty-first. I imagine that this episode will air on Wednesday or Thursday of this week, and it'll be just after the South Carolina debate. What were the big findings? Uh, maybe the top line finding that you you came up with out of the most recent. Uh, Winthrop poll. Well, you know, the biggest finding has to do with Biden, but I will say the most important thing for the debate, I think, is uh, Tom Steyer. Our our poll put him over the the edge for being allowed to debate. The Winthrop poll was chosen as one of the threshold polls that if a candidate got a certain you know number of support in our poll, they would be allowed to you know, debate in, in the national debates. So, uh, for Tom Steyer, that I guess is probably the top line, but for, for us in South Carolina who have been watching this all along, uh, it was that, that Biden overall is only ahead by, by single digits. And, you know, he needed, he needs South Carolina as his firewall. And, uh, as I've put it before, the, the flames are licking through the cracks of that firewall right now. And if he can't, bring it together and come out of South Carolina with a substantial win, then he's going to be limping into Super Tuesday. And, and I mean, he could win and still not be seen as the winner if he doesn't come out with a decisive win in the state where he was supposed to just walk away with it. Um, the other thing that surprised me was the support for, for Sanders. You'll remember in 2016, uh, um, everybody forgets Martin O'Malley, so let's just talk about Hillary and Bernie. Um, you know, she beat him by 47 points, I believe. It was absolutely uh, brutal. Um, and so he was not and is not an, an establishment Democrat. Uh, African-American voters in South Carolina tend to go with candidates they trust, not ones who promise policies left and right that the candidates think would, would help them, but, but trust. And so Biden, who had Obama's back as vice president for eight years, came in with a lot of support in the Democratic primary, but especially a lot of African-American support. And the fact that among African-Americans, Bernie Sanders is basically statistically tied with Tom Steyer right now, both in the upper teens, that's a big deal. Um, right now, what Biden is hoping for is that Jim Clyburn will break his longstanding rule of not endorsing 
and Clyburn may end up endorsing Biden. And that could help him substantially because uh, 21% of African-American likely Democratic primary voters are undecided. And if Biden is going to come out of South Carolina with anything resembling a decisive win, those undecideds need to flow to him. And he's probably hoping that um, you know, an endorsement might do that. It's great. You answered three of the questions that I had not yet asked in your answer to the first, which is, is amazing. So we can go to my next question, which is Super Tuesday is just days. It's just a few days after South Carolina. South Carolina votes uh, Saturday. Super Tuesday is the following Tuesday. However, there are states uh, that are up on Super Tuesday that have had early voting. In fact, uh, I live in North Carolina and I voted after New Hampshire. So it's really interesting to me. It's like if you're a voter, the race is changing between the time early voting opens to to the actual election day in your state. The, the shape of the race changes two or three times. If Biden does have a decisive victory in South Carolina on Saturday, is it possible that it's too late for him to gain momentum from it in North Carolina on Tuesday because people have been voting since it looked like he was dead? Well, and, and you know, people have been voting in South Carolina. We don't technically call it early voting, but you're, you're allowed to absentee vote in person as long as you give, you know, one of like 13 legitimate reasons. Oh, I'm going to be at work or, uh, you know, my dog's going to die um, on the, the date, so I can't be there. So, uh, you know, and in fact, we have people in our poll who had dropped out, but we had to keep them on there because they're going to be on the ballot. But more importantly, as you you pointed out people have already voted. So, you know, Bennett out, but you know, well, actually he got no vote. So Yang out, uh, but he was still getting some support. That makes it harder to capitalize on any momentum, but still the majority of people will be voting on that day. And you got to remember, I believe I'm going from memory. Um, so you'll look, please look it up. I believe you have to get 1,991 delegates to, to cinch the nomination. We've only had a couple of hundred. I mean, uh, you know, super Tuesday could, could quite literally just change everything and especially since Bloomberg has been staying out of the early states and has been hammering away on the Super Tuesday states those folks are for example going to have opportunities to vote for somebody that that folks in South Carolina are not um what you see happening in the run-up to Super Tuesday is a couple of things. Uh, I think some strategic targeting. For example, uh, Elizabeth Warren has basically pulled most of her advertising out of South Carolina. Um, it was really interesting. She did the smartest thing a candidate could do. It just The strategy just didn't work for her. Uh, over 60% of the South Carolina Democratic primary is going to be African-American, and two-thirds are going to be women. So that basically means black women are the crown jewel of the South Carolina uh, Democratic presidential primary. Obama knew that. Uh, he had a strategy, a brilliant strategy, the, the beauty shop strategy, to reach out directly to them. Elizabeth Warren was making a real concerted effort to reach out to African-American women, and it, it just never gained traction. So so with her polling numbers, she was, you know, basically five, six percent in our poll. Uh, the best thing she could do is pull out and focus her money 
in those Super Tuesday states because if she cannot get a tiny foothold um, and a little bit of, of, of ink and, and broadcast space for a, a good showing, then she's going to have a hard time recovering from a big loss there. North Carolina is stunningly important because of the national election, of course, but I believe it's third in how many delegates behind definitely California and Texas. And I'm, I'm thinking North Carolina has more uh, delegates than Massachusetts. But uh, I mean, the strategy for the the Super Tuesday is, you know, just sort of scrape in as many as you can. And for some of these folks who have been flailing in the early contest, it is going to be their last chance. Is it possible? Uh, I mean, anything's possible. But from your vantage point, is it possible anybody drops out after South Carolina before Super Tuesday? Everything's possible. It doesn't make a, a lot of sense if uh, if you have been putting money in Super Tuesday. Um, I would stay in through it just to see how many delegates I I can get. I mean, if somebody gets utterly humiliated in um, uh, on, on on in South Carolina. Uh, but you know, remember there we're going to be ten people on the ballot. One, two, three, four of whom have already dropped out. Uh, so you know, I I would stick it out because you have to be able to say, look, I can appeal to places you know, elsewhere. South Carolina is really important because African-Americans are such an important part of the, the Democratic constituency nationally. Uh, you know, the, African-Americans vote 90% Democratic. So showing you can get them is stunningly important. That's why South Carolina matters so much. However, if you're the candidate who can't get that block of the electorate, then Super Tuesday can show but I have broader appeal, and look, nationally, only 14% of the population is African-American. Um, I can get these other voters, and I can convince African-Americans come national election time. So if you lose in South Carolina, you stay in it uh, would be the logical choice, unless you're completely broke. Uh, but, you know, hey, we've got how many billionaires running in contests on all sides right now. So uh, we know definitely several of them are going to stick in. But a poor showing in South Carolina, for example, does not mean that Elizabeth Warren's going to pull out. She has to stick it in to Super Tuesday. So you mentioned the billionaires. And, uh, you know, I know you're a connoisseur of music. Uh, you know, you know music very well. So uh, you know what the Beatles said, that you can't buy me love. But you can maybe buy me, you know, 15% in South Carolina, right? Tom Steyer proved that. What do you think about Steyer and Bloomberg and the success they've shown uh, by having an unlimited uh, piggy bank to draw from? Well, you can't buy love, but you can buy name recognition. And Tom Steyer has shown that uh, amazingly well. His strategy, you know, simply unheard of because, you know, it, it was unproven and nobody else is going to have these unlimited funds when they have to spend four hours a, a day begging for, for money, uh, you know, $2,700 at a time from people and, you know, hoping that the PACs who can't directly endorse you get in on, on your side. You can't, quote, coordinate with them. And here comes Tom Steyer. 
the amazing thing that he's done is if you have an IP address originating from South Carolina, you are going to see his face when you open YouTube, when you open Facebook, when you open Twitter, when you open any social media platform. And because of that, he has gone from completely unknown to, you know, basically third place and essentially tied for second place among African-Americans. That actually, I think, is what's worrying Biden the most because, you know, Tom Steyer comes across as, uh, you know, the, the moderate, slightly older white guy who's an alternative to Biden who's, who's not Bernie. And the fact that he was able to come into what uh, Biden saw as his backyard. I mean, he's vacationed here. Uh, you know, his his family has has come down to South Carolina over the over the decades, and uh, this guy was able to get name recognition and support. Uh, utterly amazing, and and it definitely. You know, those of us who worry about money and politics, uh, it's been a real wake-up call. I mean, we were worried about, you know, super PACs, independent expenditure committees, and the 527s, the regular PACs, and the 501c4 organizations who can actually hide, shield their donors. And then, out of nowhere, a couple of billionaires come in and upset the entire apple cart. Yeah, I think there's a longer, uh, you know, that that's the result of that, right? That's the result of Citizens United. That's saying, well, if people can, if 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 uh, if if super PACs and they can pull money from all these different places and and be like a very wealthy uh, man, why can't a wealthy man or woman just put down their wealth and and spend it? And it's, we are definitely, it's this is a really fascinating cycle. I mean, we're in this crazy time in in, in our history of our country. But you have this battle. You have Bernie Sanders, and he, who seems to have that ascendant coalition, um, and which is completely against millionaires, and and which in some ways Donald Trump represents that. And then you have these these other millionaires, and they're both in the Democratic Party that are are uh, are vying for the nomination. And Bloomberg, who wasn't even. A Democrat until recently. So let me ask you about Bloomberg. He is, I mean, I live uh, out here near Chapel Hill and, and I can't turn on the television without seeing a Mike Bloomberg ad or turn on my computer. So he's right. He, he's, I'm sure he's dropping ads in, uh, uh, ads in Charlotte, which is uh, in the Rock Hill media market, right where you are. Absolutely. So, That's uh, one of many reasons I, I cut the cord on, on cable. I'm now <laughs> a subscriber to Hulu because of that. But please go on. You're exactly right. Yeah. So it, does that beg off people from voting? Like if you're in Columbia, South Carolina or or in uh, York, South Carolina, and you like Mike Bloomberg, do, does that make you maybe not want to go to the polls uh, come Saturday? Well, I, again, um it's true. There is a, there's overlap in in the media markets, right? So if you live, you know, near Charlotte uh, in South Carolina, if you live close enough to Wilmington, North Carolina, on the South Carolina side, if you live in Greenville, you know, where you can get uh, uh, you know coverage from Asheville, you're going to get it. But that's still not the bulk of the state. Um, and it's still not, you know, well, Greenville Spartanburg is a population center and, and York County is uh, where we are here in Rock Hill is the fastest growing uh, in the state. But, 
you know the, the the Charleston area, the Columbia area. They're they're not getting it. I do think you you're onto something important though. When people get to the ballot box here in South Carolina, uh, those who have been listening to those Bloomberg ads that have been seeping over from North Carolina are going to be shocked that his name is not on the ballot. But Bloomberg's strategy has been: I don't even have to get in it. I don't even have to to have momentum to get in on Super Tuesday and potentially, you know, the classic come from nowhere, uh, you know, haven't even been on the ballot so far and to be able to to jump in with these unlimited funds. And, you know, and you're right, he hasn't been a Democrat for very long. You know, Bernie Sanders wasn't a, a Democrat, but at least he uh, caucused with the Democratic Party in the Senate when, you know, when he was a declared independent. Um, but Michael Bloomberg has has run as Republican. He's uh, he's supported Republican senatorial candidates multiple times, and uh, and here he is ready to to make a big splash on Super Tuesday in the Democratic Party. You know, when we talk about polls, uh, we'll we'll turn on the news, and and you're going to get the top line, right? The first tab. And correct me, and I kind of want you to educate our listeners on how polls work a little bit here, but. But when you dig into a poll and you read like in the, the recent Winthrop poll, what I think is really interesting is tabs four, five and six and tab four, because we've heard so much um, about uh, Mayor Pete and, you know, he, he's the first gay man running for president. He's married man. And that uh, African-American voters tend to skew socially conservative and they might not accept him because of that. But tab four says, um, if a candidate is openly openly gay, does that make you more likely to support them, less likely to support them, or makes no difference whether you support them? No difference is 82% among all people who were polled and 79% amongst African Americans. Does that, are we, have we like, did the Winthrop poll help us challenge conventional wisdom? A little bit, uh, you know. It, it's still, you know, going to be seen as as something that may not be fully supported. Uh, you know, when you you are in church on Sunday, when you're in in black churches, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of folks will always, you know, have the running joke of, uh, you know, look, uh, everybody pretends uh, the 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 music director at the the black church just hasn't found the the right woman yet. Um, but the you know, it is not as accepted in the African American community. But uh, that's different when you look at sort of somebody who's you know going to be a, a leader or somebody who's in business, and that is a change. Uh, it is it still may be personally taboo, but the fact that African Americans and folks in general are saying, "Look, you know, to four out of five of us, it makes absolutely no difference." So that is uh, the the slow swing of of I think the uh, you know that that conventional wisdom beginning to change. And tab five asked the same question about a woman, and it's pretty much it's uh, no difference uh, among all uh, correspondents. It's eighty four percent, and among blacks, it's eighty three percent. So that's not too far off of that. Um, and then tab seven is interesting. Which is more important to you personally that the Democratic Party nominate a presidential candidate with a strong chance of beating Donald Trump, or who shares your positions on major issues? What do we hear on the news all the time? Democrats' main 
goal, hands down, is to defeat Donald Trump. However, among all correspondents, 44% say beat Trump, and among all correspondents, 45% say they want a, a nominee who shares their views on the major issues, and African Americans are polling equally. So it's essentially a, a coin flip. Now, that's, here's the bigger deal about that. I'm glad you brought that up because the fact that that's even among African Americans is the surprise because in our last poll, uh, more African Americans were saying, I want somebody who shares my values than we're even saying beat Trump. And that's because South Carolina black voters, it's always been more about trust. Uh, black voters in South Carolina black voters in our country, African-Americans in the entire country, voting or not, have always been, you know, promised the moon and and given a flashlight. Uh, you know, policies have been been promised, oh, these are going to help you out. And then they've sort of been dropped. So African-American voters are, you know, not big on promises that might not be kept. And it's been more about trust, like, you know, who they, they trust to go in and do the right thing. But now it is evenly about trust and beating Trump. And that shows a, a bit of a change. I think African-American voters are, are beginning to get worried that somebody might come out of the primary um, who can't beat Trump. And right now you can, you know, you can argue that any can beat Trump and you can argue that Trump can beat any. And they're, they're you know. Obviously, the supporters are going to say that's a bold-faced lie. The person I support is the only one who can beat Trump. But the truth is they all have weaknesses. And you're right. The media always plays this as only about Trump. But the fact that many of them say, listen, I don't just want somebody who can beat Trump, that's a message that Bloomberg, for example, needs to worry about. Um, you know, he needs to convince folks, for example, that, you know, hey, I'm a former Republican, but I'm, I'm now in your camp and I can beat Trump, but I really do believe what you believe. So that's his hurdle. Uh, you know, if he can overcome it, um, by piling up a stack of money and leaping over that hurdle, it'll, you know, we'll see. But, um, you know, the fact is that it's not just about beating Trump, but the more surprising fact for me is that by now it is equally about beating Trump among African Americans. That shows some serious worry. And wouldn't that go to Bernie Sanders' benefit? <laughs> uh, well, you, you know, it, it did go to Bernie Sanders' benefit somewhat because it's uh, his support went up among African Americans. I mean, they didn't really like what they saw in, in 2016. Bernie supporters will say, aha, but he got 26% of the vote in, in, in 2016, and he's sitting at, you know, 18% now. Yeah, it, he, there were, it was a basically a two-person race, um, you know, and this is, is not – so it, they aren't comparable in that way, but he has been getting support. The, the scary thing is not anything for Bernie. It should be for Biden. Uh, he was hoping to come in and be touted as the old white guy who can beat the other old white guy. Uh, you know, I'm the guy who can beat Trump. And you know what? Folks are not necessarily seeing that. His debate performance in South Carolina, I think, uh, is going to be partially about that, is how is he going to perform? Do you think he needs to attack Sanders in the debate, or do you think he needs to set his sights on Trump and just go Trump, go after Trump? 
at this point for him, it's not an either or. Uh, he has to wave off attacks from uh, you know the outside. For example, uh, Elizabeth Warren needs to take some of Biden's support in the Super Tuesday state. She knows she's not going to get it in South Carolina, but she needs to be tearing him down a little bit to gain ground in Super Tuesday. Uh, it, it depends on where Sanders goes. Uh, so what I think Biden probably ought to do is go after Trump, but with sort of the background of, and I'm the only one who can beat him. I'm proven. And, you know, and some quip that, that might make it seem that, you know, a democratic socialist is, is not going to be able to beat Trump and, and, you know, and basically allude to that without saying it, unless Bernie comes directly at him, which I kind of expect he will. Let me ask you a question about the caucuses. You know, we saw, of course, Iowa was a, was a complete disaster. And even uh, Nevada came off a little bit better, but there are still some questions about irregularities in counting the votes. Do you think we've seen the last of the caucuses? Sadly, no. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wish. Uh, you know, the only people who like caucuses are, are uh, Iowa political scientists, um, and but just because they are fascinating. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, they they make no sense, but they're fascinating. I mean, for for those folks who aren't familiar with how it works, you literally show up at a location, say a gymnasium. There's somebody standing in each corner with a candidate's name. You go stand with them and, hey, don't we all love Bernie? Don't we all love Elizabeth, right? And so then they, they, every, you get to speechify and then they count, all right? And everybody who is beyond a certain threshold is deemed viable. Now, here are the rules this time, which wasn't last time in Iowa. Once you are with a candidate who is deemed viable, you can't change, but there is a round where people can change. So that's not the final vote. Now people who are supporting a candidate who doesn't have enough people standing you know, underneath the, the backboard uh, in the gymnasium, uh, folks will come up to them, hey, your candidate doesn't have enough. Why don't you come with us? Or they can go to the undecided people standing in the middle of the court and beg for their support. And finally, they, they get it all and they recount it. And now that initial vote is reported, that final vote is reported, and then it is, uh, it, it's put in a formula that gives a couple of delegate equivalents to what's going to happen when they finally get to the convention. Now, if that made sense to any of your listeners, um, you know, uh, then they don't understand it because nobody understands it and it doesn't really make sense. And caucuses are not representative of the party in general. Heck, primaries are only barely representative of the party, right? The, the folks who show up in the primary are, you know, in, in most places or in all places, much more liberal than, than the regular Democrats, much more conservative than the regular Republicans. Well, take that conservatism or that liberalism times 10, and those are the people who actually show up uh, and hang out for three hours for a caucus, now, you know, so again, it's it's not the end of the caucuses. I, I personally wish it was. Um, but, uh, uh, hey, as long as we maintain in South Carolina the first in the South, uh, I'll, I'll keep my yap shut. And so what is the history behind that? How did South Carolina become the first in the South? Well, uh, you know, uh, 
we didn't have our first primary until uh, 1980, presidential primary, and that was for the Republicans. So, uh, you know, it basically had been done by convention, and the Republicans, you know, were trying to make South Carolina relevant. I mean, everybody remembers the old South. You know, after you know, after the Civil War on, um, conservative whites ran everything. They didn't want the blacks voting, but those conservative whites were Southern Democrats. Well, as the National Democratic Party came forward, and in the '60s, the National Democratic Party is supporting civil rights. The Southern Democratic Party is going, whoa, 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 we we can't support this. But the elected Democrats were still super conservative whites. They weren't going to lose, but the average voter was beginning to slowly say, okay, now I can vote for these guys still. They're, they're still good conservative. They're still good segregationist. I, I'll still support them. But at the national level, they were beginning to split their tickets and vote Republican at the top of the ticket uh, and Democrat down ticket. So the Republican Party in South Carolina says, we have to show we're relevant. And so they pushed for this, the, the primary for the first time in South Carolina, and it made a big difference for, for Ronald Reagan. Um, and of course, you know, it ha- has to be on a Saturday because they didn't have a lot of money and you can only get volunteers on a day where most people aren't working. Um, so that happened for a while. The Democratic Party, as it was evolving, uh, was slower to catch up, mainly because they were afraid it would sort of upset the apple cart for the you know the the folks that the National Party wanted, uh, and so they really didn't get into it until uh, the early nineties, ninety two. But what both parties very quickly realized. Again, South Carolina is a phenomenal place for both parties, for the Republicans to see every stripe of conservatism, right, from evangelical right-wing Christians to, uh, you know, uh, libertarian-leaning Republicans to the average business Republican. So if you can show you can get support from that kind of crowd, then you can win over all conservatives you know, across the country, but mainly in the South. And of course, for the Democratic Party, we're the first test of African-American support, which is so crucial for the Democratic Party, but not just African-American support, but enthusiasm. So you look at 2008, not only did Barack Obama win South Carolina, but the turnout was spectacular. So Barack Obama had support and he had enthusiasm. Hillary Clinton overwhelmingly won. I mean, just giant numbers, 47, I think, percent over Bernie, but turnout was substantially lower. And that was the canary in the coal mine that the Democratic Party didn't pay close attention to because in the 2016 presidential election, African-American voting was down 7%. White voting was up 5%. Um, They were not able to get enthusiasm among their base for Hillary Clinton. Clinton, uh, anywhere near the enthusiasm that Barack Obama was able to muster. So then looking at possible scenarios, let's say Bernie Sanders pulls ahead of Joe Biden. He gets a bump from the caucus last Saturday and he has a good night at the debate. And even though he doesn't get the Clyburn endorsement, which he, he probably won't, he beats Joe Biden and he has a substantial number percentage of the African-American vote would that allay fears with the national party that he can't win in November against Donald Trump? Uh, no, it, nothing will allay fears. I mean, the fact is 
Donald Trump can win. Uh, you know, all the folks who are, are Democratic activists are, you know, just wagging their head going, no, it's just, it's just not possible. They didn't think it was possible last time. Um, you know, he is very capable of winning, especially if Democrats don't turn out. So no matter who is, uh, it comes out with the nominee, the Democratic Party is going to be looking in its rearview mirror at the lack of turnout in previous contests and saying, we have to put the, the, the gas pedal to the floor and spur turnout. Uh, they're very quickly, once the, uh, um, you know, a delegate, once the nominee is decided, the national party is going to very quickly have to get behind them and, and prove whether they believe in their hearts or not, prove that that person can beat Donald Trump. The interesting thing is if we have a contested convention, oh my, that'll, uh, that'll be fascinating to watch because then we won't know really who the nominee is going to be, and the Democrats will be just at each other with pickaxes all the way up till the convention, while you know Trump, uh, you know, just twiddles twiddles his thumbs. Yeah, I think it's hard to see how a contested convention could help the Democrats choose a, a winner for November. It's tough to see. I, I don't know how they would recover from that. Uh, so, last question on this. Um, what number does Biden need to hit to come out of South Carolina with a head of steam? He's got to have a double-digit win, and it, and it needs to be substantial. I mean, I'd say if he comes out in the uh, upper teens, mid-upper teens, uh, it'll be harder to say, oh, you should have won by more. Of course, he's no matter what he wins with, people are going to say that. Um, they're going to point to you know, Hillary's margin of victory, which again is not comparable because there's more people in this contest. But he needs absolutely decisive. And uh, if he comes out with anything less, then he's got a target on him for Super Tuesday. And he really has to show momentum. The problem for him is if he doesn't come out with a solid, decisive win and a good showing in Super Tuesday, his donors are going to start to dry up. Well, Scott, we uh, we look forward to the results and, and thank you so much for, for joining us today and helping us figure this out. Always my pleasure. Thank you for joining us here on Politics of Truth. Next week, I'll be on assignment, but CNN's Doug High will be our host and his guest will be Axios White House correspondent and politics editor, Margaret Talev. We hope you'll join us. Until next time, take care. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. <laughs>